Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be spending our first session there in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Last night we began our look this weekend at the connection between what we believe about God, really believe, not what our official documents say we believe, though those are important, but deep under the surface, Tozer said it's, it's difficult work to get down there and to see what really we believe about God, but when we do get there, what we, in our most basic sense, believe God to be, how that affects everything. And so then our duty and the wisest course forward then is instead of dealing merely with the external problems in a life or in a church, in a marriage or with our children is to, not, while not ignoring the external problems as if they aren't important, we do go beneath the surface and deal with the root system. Last night we looked at Moses reintroduced to God in chapter 3 of the book of Exodus. What a task he was given to bring a people out of Egypt. Not only that, but to bring them, in a sense, face to face with a living God. So many years they'd lived in the emptiness of Egyptian idolatry surrounding them, adjusting, influencing their views of the living God. And now they're going to be brought out and they're going to need to know who God is if they're going to walk with him in the wonderful way that he offered them. And so for that great task, he was given a provision. And the provision really is summed up in the statement, who, who are you, God? Who am I to tell them? And you're to tell them that the I am, that I am is sending you. So the provision for all of that was this incomprehensible, eternal, self-existing, unchanging God. For Every believer, there is a glorious task. We are to bring every area of the life, our thoughts, our choices, our longings, our family, our workplace, our church, bring them all under the umbrella of the rule of Christ in such a way that by the grace of God, continually working in us, all of them, they become mirrors of the glory of Christ. And people can see Him in us. It's a great task. It's the kind of task that will be everlastingly valuable. And for that task, we've been given the same provision. The I Am, the incomprehensible and self-existing and unchanging God, has been united to our humanity in Jesus Christ. And He is now our kinsman, which is a wonderful thing. Heaven's throne is occupied by a man, the God-man. It's astonishing what the angels must think to see humanity on the throne of heaven beside the Father. So our task as believers is to make sure that we are increasingly knowing the true God, as Colossians we're going to look at as he prays, that they would increase in the knowledge of God. Our task is to set our hearts on this course and stay on the course of an ever clearer view of the God that we belong to and to be ever transformed into that image by looking at Him. We want to have a life with all of its varieties and all the tasks that you have. We want to have a life where all the responsibilities and aspects of life are pulled into the orbit 
of God and, and brought into, into that happy harmony with who he is. And so everything orbits God. And that's our job as individuals. That's our job as parents to labor for that with our family. And that's our job as a church. Now, as a pastor, I find it very tempting to go about that in a wrong way. And uh, so I try to resist that. I don't always do very, uh, very well at resisting it. As a pastor, as a parent, it's very easy to look at the people that you're concerned with and that God has, in a sense, placed in your hands. And you think, how do we get the family, the children, the church... How do we get them into the right place? And so it's very tempting to build a series of fences. And while the Bible does have clear fences, fences really don't bring us into the conformity. So we can put a straight jacket on our children. We can put fences on our church. And we lay down very hard and rigid lines. And for a while, it looks like it works. Everyone kind of conforms. But within the heart, you have to ask, have we really been altered or have we just been given a new fence? As an individual, it's very tempting when you look at your life and there's so many areas that seem to rebel against Christ. They just don't seem to come in line easily and you're tempted perhaps to fence them in or to put a straight jacket on yourself. But I want to tell you that scripturally and by our experience, we know that the greatest way to bring the areas of life into conformity with God is by that great gravitational pull of Christ. In, in a church setting, I think of it this way. If we can lift up the shepherd and the sheep can see him service after service, song after song, prayer meeting after prayer meeting, Sunday school after Sunday school class, can see clear views of the shepherd, then what happens is the sheep go toward him. And it's not perfect, it's messy, and, it's, and, it's, and there are sheep that stray. But generally speaking, the sheep are brought in close to the shepherd when we lift up the shepherd. With my own heart, I find that if I can get a clear view of the gravity of God and the, the magnitude of God, then, the gra- then that gravitational pull, every area in the life, without me going around and with a trash can and, and a broom, you know, trying to clean up myself, I find that every area, the way I treat my children, the way I talk to my wife, the way I work, the way I eat, the way I spend money, the way I view everything is being wonderfully altered by this new pool. So in sanctification, you can tie your life to Christ by a series of rules that you get from a good book. 101 things dads ought to do, 16 things a Christian businessman does, you know, five things for a healthy marriage. You can tie all those ropes to your life or you can so focus on God, so know God that he pulls those areas into his orbit. Now, how are you going to do that? Well, where would you begin if you wanted to study the character of God. Some of us might say, well, J.I. Packer's book, Knowledge, uh, Knowing God, that's a very good book. Or A.W. Tozer's little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, or A.W. Pink's little book, The Attributes of God. Those are all good books. Then if you're really brave, or if you have a lot of space on your shelves, you can buy Stephen Sharnock, the Puritan, with his 800-page book, 
But really, it's, a, it's not a bad read, all right? It's, he's, a, he's a very readable Puritan. Or you could go for the older, some of the others. There's Timothy Dwight and his four volumes. So, you know, where do we go? The Lord has given us one place to go to know him that is so infinitely superior to all others that while we appreciate the writers that I've just mentioned and we love, you know, teachers in the church. God has given us teachers, but really for us, there is one starting place and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, the demonstration of God for people just like us. So what I want us to do this morning is to follow up on what we talked about Moses. All right, so Moses hears from God, I am the I am. And Moses is set on a wonderful journey of knowing God in a way he never knew him before. But where do we start? Well, we can start with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to look at the life of the Apostle Paul, seen in his letter to the Colossians. And I want us to see how Paul's views of God, which he receives by studying the person of Jesus Christ, how they affect everything in his life and how they might affect everything in our lives. Well, Paul, for so many years as Saul, so many years he is religious, he's a Pharisee, so many hours studying his Old Testament, so many sermons, so many meetings, you can only imagine the life of a Pharisee, and yet at the end of all that time, so, so ignorant of the of who God really is. He thinks he knows the Messiah. He thinks he understands what he's going to be like by studying the text. But when the Messiah really comes, Saul of Tarsus hates him and persecutes his church. Of course, God interrupts that in that wonderful meeting between him and Saul on the road to Damascus. And beginning there, Saul's whole understanding of the character of God and who the Messiah is and what real religion is, is transformed at that point, and uh, really it's just the beginning. Now, years after meeting God, years after the beginning of his real knowledge of God, we find him in prison, and he writes about Jesus Christ there. But what I want us to see, I want us to look at some different areas of Paul's life and how it was affected by his understanding of who God is. So, let's look first at Paul's view of a Christian How did Paul describe a Christian? And we find this in a prayer in chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And Now, as we're about to look at this, let's let's stop and think. Honest prayers, all right? Now, not prayers that we do because other people are listening to us. Honest, honest, crying out in prayer really shows what we believe, our theology, in a nutshell, doesn't it? I mean, if you ask someone what they believe about Christ, if you ask them what they believe about the atonement, what do they believe about sanctification, what about the new birth, what about perseverance, what about the doctrine of heaven and hell, eternal judgment, what about the character of God, you can ask people that and they will give you, oh, they give you so much talk. But if you could listen to them pray, you would know the answer to all of that. Our prayers, when, when we're not praying to anyone else, when we're talking to our Father, really, re- really reveal what we believe in, in a nutshell. So when we read the Apostle Paul and we read a prayer of his, we don't just look at it as an example of how to pray, 
but we look at it as a window into the soul of the apostle to know what he really believes. And what I want us to do now is to look at the prayer for the Colossian church and to see in this prayer what are Paul's expectations of a Christian. Because he doesn't pray things he doesn't expect that, that he doesn't believe are possible. What does Paul expect of a person who professes to love Christ? And by seeing those expectations, really we have, in a very simple way, Paul's description of what he believes a Christian is. Well, verses 9 through 12, let me read that with you. Colossians chapter 1. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask, now here comes the prayer, that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light." Well, let's just stop there. That's Paul's prayer. These are the expectations that Paul has of a young church and of baby Christians. Now, let's look at it. The overarching request is found in the first verse. I am praying that God would fill you with a real knowledge of His will so that you would walk Worthy of him. Now, the little word worthy here is a wonderful word in the Greek. It means matching. All right, so let's think of um, a simple thing. Let's think of clothing. There are times when I get up early in the morning on Sunday morning, my wife's still asleep, and I use my cell phone as a flashlight. I don't know if you use your cell phone. So instead of turning on the lights in the room and waking up my wife, so I five in the morning, I'm stumbling along, and I'm at an age now where I need glasses to read, and my my feet are creaking and my knees are popping and I've got my flashlight. I can't read any text in the morning. It's too blurry. So I'm going through and I pick out a pair of socks. They look black. Then I get my suit. They're all pretty dark. And then my white shirt and a tie and I quietly sneak out of the room. Then sometime in the middle of the church service, I'm sitting waiting to preach and I look down and I have a pair of brown socks on and my black suit and I think, I hope nobody can see my socks. My wife says to me, why did you put brown socks on today? I said, well, I thought they were black. When we talk about walking worthy of the Lord, what we're talking about is that there ought to be a coordinating quality between who He is and how we're living. Does your living match your Lord or is there a jarring there? Is there something that doesn't match the brown socks and the... I have actually put on suit pants from one suit, suit jacket from another suit, and arrived at church and looked down and thought, this is not, this is something's wrong here, you know. Another, word, another way of thinking of it is the, uh, the scales, all right? The Greek word was used sometimes to talk about, uh, to walk worthy. Worthy was used of a matching weight. So if we have this much weight here, we have this much worth on this side. And so we even out the scales. We don't want scales in our life that are heavy, with the grace of God and light and empty on obedience. So Paul, that's Paul's prayer. I'm praying that you would be so aware of the will of God, so full of that knowledge, that the life would match and not jar with the Lord. 
so that you would walk worthy. And then he gives a list of specifics. What kind of life matches Christ? Well, fully pleasing, fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, a life of patient enduring, filled with joy and gratitude toward the Father who has made us partakers of a whole different, whole new inheritance. Now, look back at that and look at the measures that Paul uses. Listen to these phrases. Filled with this knowledge. All wisdom. Fully pleasing Him. Every good work. Increasing knowledge. All might. Do you see the measures that Paul has of a Christian? The Colossian Christians are not super saints. They're not all missionaries and Bible professors and pastors. They're not famous saints that we know. Do you know their names? We don't know their names. We know this. It's a new church plant with baby Christians, first generation Christians. And this is what Paul expects from the least of saints, the least of Christians. Because of what God has done in you through the gospel. And because I've heard of the great work of the gospel and how God has changed your lives. I'm expecting these measures. Every Christian filled All wisdom, fully pleasing, every good work, increasing in knowledge, strengthened with all might. Now I want us to stop and ask ourselves a few questions. If you were to write down a list of expectations that come to your mind when someone makes a profession of faith here at the church and the pastor announces that they're going to be baptized soon, what list would you write? What do you Not what should you expect, but what do you expect from a profession of faith, say, of a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old? Would you write that list? I wouldn't have written the list. What do we expect? Well, in some churches, you expect never to see them again after baptism. I have a friend who is a minister of education at a church down in a neighboring town from where I pastor, and... We had lunch together. He and I are not agreed in theology necessarily, but he's a very genuine believer, very uh, encouraging man. And he sat down and he said, I'm bothered. Our church is the fastest growing church in the denomination in this area. And I don't remember the numbers exactly, but it was something like this. We had, uh, like, and this is a church of about 400. We had like 100, 150 professions of faith last year. Wow, I said, really? Yes. But of the 150 professions of faith, we were only able to get about 30 into a baptistry. So they come, they ask Jesus into their heart, they leave the service, they never come back to church, they don't even get baptized. And of the, of the 30 or so, or however many got baptized, only two are still attending church one year later. So you have 150 conversions, so-called, and you have two people that come to church. So in that setting... What do people, when someone says, I've been saved, well, we all have a little thought in our mind that comes up. What do you expect to flow out of that statement? Well, you hope they get baptized. You hope that they come to church a year later. Not very high expectations. Certainly not Paul's list. Now, if you're in a better church, you would expect that they will come to church. You'd expect certain things, wouldn't you? They'll probably read their Bible. They'll they'll be faithful, 
They, we expect that uh, they would probably tell their family that they'd become Christians. Maybe they would witness at work. But would you ever have written that list? When someone says in your church, I've been saved, do you say, Oh God, I expect that by your grace, they will increase in your knowledge being given wisdom by you so that they will walk worthy of you. That's what's going to happen now. Now they're going to live a life aiming at fully pleasing you, being fruitful in every good work, constantly increasing in their real knowledge of you, being strengthened with the almightiness, the almighty that comes from God, and living a life of patient enduring all the way to the end until they see Christ face to face grateful and happy to belong to Him. Is that what you expect of every profession of faith? In your heart, what list do you write? Well, maybe we think differently. Maybe we think that Paul's expectations are just first century expectations. And that's what you could expect in the glory days of the book of Acts. But that's not what you can expect today here in Kansas. Why not? Do you feel that this is first century stuff? Let me ask you, if this is not your list of expectations of a Christian, if this is not your definition of a baby Christian, then my question is this. Which of the things that Paul prays for are you willing to leave off and still call it a Christian life? Now, you know I'm not talking about spiritual perfection. Paul isn't saying to the Colossians, you perfectly know the Lord. You perfectly match His greatness with your life. You're perfectly pleasing, perfectly obedient. We're not talking about that. But that's what Paul is praying for, this, the maturing of the people in this, on this path. Now, which of these are you willing to leave behind? I'm not talking on paper, which one are you willing to leave behind? Because we know the answer is, well, none of them. In practice, which ones does your church not expect of a profession of faith? Every church has its expectations, and everyone knows the expectations. If you profess to be a believer here, and then are drunk next Saturday night, and show up in church disheveled and smelling like booze, everyone knows that's not acceptable behavior. But what is acceptable What do you think a Christian is? Now, I'm not asking this so as to fix your evangelistic problems or to fix church membership issues. I'm asking this because you ought to have the exact same views as Paul did because you ought to get your views from the same place that Paul got his views. If you want your views to be the same as Paul's, if you want to think of a Christian like the apostle thought of a Christian, where do you begin? Not by buying a book on conversion and what is a church member and what is a Christian life or a book on how to pray. You begin where Paul began. But we'll get to that in a minute. Second window into the life of Paul. Not only what he thought of a Christian but his theology of the gospel. Look at verse 13, and then we'll jump up to verse 19 through 23. Verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Then verse 19. 
It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. All right. Uh, Let me keep going. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now here's another window into the life of Paul. What does he believe about the gospel? Paul is the church's greatest theologian. I mean, all of our favorite theologians. None of us with our favorite theologians say so-and-so, so-and-so, John Owen, John Calvin, whoever is your favorite theologian. Nobody, nobody says, I like John Owen so much, I think he was way ahead of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, of all the men that Christ has sent to the church... We all feel the Apostle Paul is the, the source of clear thinking about God and, and the gospel. Now, what does he think about the gospel? Well, let's break it up into these three phrases. He has, you were, and you are. He has. He has, Paul says here, given you an imperishable inheritance. Please think about your inheritance every once in a while. If you were the children of a very wealthy parent, you would think about your inheritance. I mean, you don't want your parent to pass away, but you think about your inheritance. Think about your inheritance as a believer. What was your inheritance? Well, you were children of Adam, so you belonged to the family of Adam, so you had the inheritance of Adam. You inherited a wrong name. In heaven, the family of Adam, Adam's family is a traitorous family. And every one of Adam's children is born deserving everlasting judgment. That's not an inheritance we want. Paul talks about the inheritance we were heirs of wrath. Just like the world around us. We we inherited alienation. We inherited a sinful nature. We inherited guilt. But now Christ has brought you a very different inheritance. And now, just as astonishing... As what we had in Adam, we find now that through Christ, we are heirs of Christ. And all that he's done in his obedience and his suffering is attributed to each one of his children. What a different inheritance. This inheritance has been given to us. We've been delivered from sin's dark kingdom and transferred into the kingdom of his son. You do understand that we have to be transferred by Christ That there is no one who has ever immigrated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Never. No one has ever come to their senses under the influence of sin, a sinful nature, a sinful world, and the deceitfulness of sin, and said to themselves, you know, I don't like living in a world where I try to rule myself, but really sin's my boss. I think I'll go hand my life over to an invisible God and live for Him. Because the nature of sin is such that Deep within, we're held captive by a jailer that we prefer to Christ. Now, Christ comes and he conquers our jailer. The strong man is beaten by the stronger, 
and he breaks open the jail cell and he pulls us to himself with these cords of love and we walk out of the dungeon and all the self-deceit and into this land of light and we're free to live for a new king. But Christ is the one that transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to light, not us. That's Paul's idea of the gospel. He redeemed you from guilt and shame. He has endured the punishment for your sins by the, at the cross. Now, that's what he has done. Is that what you view the gospel as? Then he describes us. He says, you were, you once were alienated from God. You say, well, yes, I know I did wrong things. No, he says, in your mind, in your heart, it's what you were that was so offensive to God, not just what you did. We understand that, don't we? That the real problem of sin is not the fruit of sin. It's not that I lied and cheated. It's not that I was a hypocrite on the outside, but that God looks deep beneath that and he sees that by nature it's what I am that is so offensive to him. So I might change the external behavior through religion and morality, but I can never make myself the type of person that's pleasing to the Lord. It is the almighty work of God that transforms us within. You were alienated from God in your mind. You were enemies of God in your choices. Then he says what you are now. You are wholly separated. You are blameless and you are above reproach in his sight. That, that's an astonishing gospel. Is that our gospel? If someone asks you, would you write down on a piece of paper, what is the good news? Would you have written this? Would you have written something less than this? We know these words, but do they hold us like they held the Apostle Paul? Do they affect you? Do they transform you? Do they haunt you? Do they follow you to work? Do they follow you into the bedroom? Do they follow you into the kitchen? Do they leave you, never leave you alone? Do they transform you? Now, I know that we agree with the Apostle Paul, and I know that you're the kind of church that's heard these words, and you've been taught what they mean. But let me ask you, when your conscience, Christian, cries out that you have once again chosen that sin and your conscience cries out and says how can you imagine that he loves you how can you even call yourself a Christian do you buckle under the weight of that accusation or do you by grace go back to the gospel and say I deserve hell but it's not me it's him and I'm clinging to what he's done and I will not be shaken off of this hope What about as a church? Do you hold to these words? Do they hold you? What happens when a church member that you love, that everyone looked up to, is found out to be a fake, living a life of secret shame, and he destroys his family? And the whole church is rocking and reeling from the shock. I thought so-and-so loved the Lord. He taught a Sunday school class. He had such wonderful things to say. His eyes teared up when he talked about Christ But I come to find out he was living two lives. When that kind of a thing happens and the enemy says to you, you don't really think that the gospel is enough to transform a man, do you? Do you buckle under the weight of that accusation? What about when you go to work and you tell someone about the Lord, you speak to your spouse about the Lord, you speak to your children about the Lord, 
and they turn to you again the hundredth time and mock your hope in Christ. And you go to bed that night and it's you and your mind and the whisper comes again. Is it really real? Or am I just fooled by a preacher? The Apostle Paul is in prison for loving the Messiah and he's called a blasphemer. I hope you don't think it was effortless. He clings to the gospel. Where do you get that kind of a view of the gospel of Jesus Christ that doesn't let you go? Well, you don't go buy a book on the gospel. You get it the same way Paul got it, the same place. Let's look at the third window. The third window, Paul's expectations of a Christian, his definition of a Christian, Paul's view of the gospel. Now, let's look at Paul's view of the Christian life, especially a life of service. Verse 24 to the end of the chapter. I now rejoice. Now, Paul, in prison? Yes. Now, mocked as a God-hater? Yes. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. That's Paul's view of the Christian life of service. He is willing to suffer for the good of the church. And you say, well, So am I. But he says, but I rejoice in that opportunity. And that's a little harder for us to say. So do we. When I can't go to sleep at night during the week because someone in the church is drifting where I pastor and and they seem to be perilously close to making choices that will bring such dishonor on the Lord or future, uh, it'll just set the trajectory of their life in the wrong way. And you think to yourself, you're the pastor. How come you haven't done a better job and you just agonize and you can't sleep? When you're a parent and you can't sleep at night because your children are making choices that break your heart, but they're not five years old anymore. You can't spank them and set them on a better course. They're adults and you plead with them and you pray for them. When you suffer a broken heart, longing to see Christ's work prosper in people who don't seem so interested in that, Can you rejoice in that? Are you happy when you can't sleep because you're brokenhearted over the state of the church? The reason he is so joyful to pour out his life is he says, I am filling up what lacks in the sufferings of Christ. That's a very strange phrase, but I think very simplistically put, we could say this. Paul's not saying I'm helping to pay for the sins of the people, Christ's. Suffering on the cross is complete. The atonement has been paid. The debt has been paid. But there is the suffering that comes in 
interceding for others, in bringing them to maturity. It's the suffering of a parent. So Paul says in another place, I'm like a woman who is in birth pains all over again, hoping to bring you to maturity, but you seem to be plagued with immaturity. Don't go back, go forward. There is a suffering that comes in loving people and bringing them to maturity in Christ. He says also that he's a steward of the gospel. And this is the mystery that has been hidden but now has been revealed. It's the hope of glory. It's Christ in us. And he says, I've been entrusted with a task. And that task is to present every person that God entrusts to Paul as a minister. To present every one of them complete in Christ as much as lies within his ability. Is that you? Do you serve the Lord like that? Are you? Do you rejoice to give your life for the spiritual benefit of other people? Do you rejoice to do that on Sunday mornings but not Monday mornings? Do you rejoice to do that on Sundays but not on your day off? In our homes, are we happy to point our children to the Lord? Are we happy to serve other people that live next to us except when we're tired after a long day of work? I mean, it's not easy to follow Paul here, is it? Where does Paul find the energy to live that kind of life and to rejoice in it? Well, wherever he finds it, that's where we're going to have to find it. Now let's come to the answer to that question. Where does Paul get his view of a Christian? Where does Paul get his view of the gospel? Where does Paul get his view of a Christian life? And the answer is in the passage which I skipped in chapter 1. It's in Paul's view of God in Christ. Look at verse 15. He is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, which is the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Now, we certainly don't have time to look at that carefully, but perhaps we have time to suggest future study. Here's the secret of the life of the Apostle Paul. It is not Paul that's different. He's not a different kind of man. He's just like us, except it is his understanding of who God is viewed through the lens of his Son that grips him. And has changed this man. It is Christ known and lived upon that made the Apostle Paul. Now, he takes us for a walk down down this royal corridor. And we have these series of portraits of God as we see him in the sun. So very quickly, what does he see of God in the sun? First of all, he sees that Jesus of Nazareth is the image of the invisible God, the hidden and invisible God, clothed in an unapproachable light, has now revealed himself in the humanity of Jesus Christ. He has stamped his character upon that human body and soul. The Greek word is used for a coin where you have the image of a person. So in Great Britain, every coin, every every form of money in Britain, on one side it has something, and on the other side it has who? The queen. Everything has the queen. 
Everything about God has been stamped, impressed perfectly upon the Son. Now, we don't understand the infinity of that. We talked about that last night. We can't fully comprehend Him. We don't get our minds all the way around God so one day we can say, I understand everything there is to understand about God. But it is perfect for us what He's given us. Now, it's not that God has photocopied Himself, all right? The Greek word is very specific. It's not that God brings... Jesus did not bring us a picture, or God did not bring us a picture of himself in Jesus Christ and say, this is a picture of me, it's a photocopy. It's different than that, right? It is God himself visiting or manifesting. It's God showing himself. It's God um, unveiling himself. It's God expressing himself. And so maybe the simplest way of saying it, it's the difference between having a photocopy of a person and the person visiting us. God has made his invisible glory known through Jesus Christ, but it's not just the coin being stamped. It is God himself expressing himself through his son. So Jesus says to the disciples, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. No man has seen God at any time, John says, but the Son of God who dwells in the bosom of the Father. He has revealed him. Hebrews chapter 1 says this, He is the brightness of the Father's glory. He's the outshining of God. How? He is the exact representation of his nature. So when we see the life of Jesus in the Gospels, we are seeing the exact representation of the nature of God in a human life. That's at the heart of Paul's view of a Christian. God, how can Paul pray like that? How can he expect that of a person who professes faith? Because he knows Christ to be the image of the invisible God. Second, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, this is not talking about firstborn as in like Jesus was the first thing created and then others. That's a heresy that some hold to. But it's the Old Testament picture of the firstborn. It's a title, not, it's not talking about a priority in time, first of a whole group of people. But here it's talking about rank and dignity. He is the firstborn of God. That is, he is the heir of all creation. So we know the Old Testament picture. The firstborn receives the great uh, lion's share of the inheritance and then the other children get their little bits. But the firstborn gets the blessing. He gets the inheritance. Now, Christ is, Paul says, the firstborn or the heir of all creation. So when we look out the door, everything that we see Everything we see is his inheritance. Every galaxy, every star, every planet, every subatomic particle belongs to him. Now that's at the heart of Paul's theology. He is also, Paul says, the creator and the sustainer of all these things. Everything exists because of Jesus of Nazareth. The Bible says that everything is by him. Everything is through him. He is the agent of creation and everything is for him. And then later in the passage we read that he sustains everything. Everything in creation, every event, every relationship, every person, every possession exists by Christ, through Christ and for Christ. Even Satan is sustained In his wicked rebellion at this present moment, his existence is sustained in the hand 
of our Savior King. That's why Paul can have that kind of life. Number four, he was before all things. Now this is talking about time. Do you remember John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right? In the beginning was. Do you see the, 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 the mystery here? Here's a thing called the beginning. All right, let's say this is the end. Here's the beginning. In the beginning was. So in the beginning, something already was in existence. How can you already be in existence if this is the beginning? Because he's God. The eternal son preexisted all things. He is face to face with the father, with God. The little little uh, Greek word there means face to face. There is an equality and he is God. Not separate person. He's not a separate being. The great mystery of the Son that He pre-existed all things, though He was born in Bethlehem. That's why Paul's life is the way it is. The fifth thing he says is He's the head. He's the head of the church, the governmental head. We do have a king. God forgive us that the American church has to the whole world presented a hideous beast of a body walking around without a head or a body walking around with about a thousand heads. I mean, we pretend as if there is no king and it's up to us to discern what we're going to do with life and how we're going to carry forward Christianity. But Paul says he is already by the Father's choice the head. He is our governmental head. He's our representative head. When I go to God in prayer, when I come ashamed of my sin, when I come pleading on behalf of someone else, I never come directly to God. I come to God through my representative, through my mediator. Do you know Martin Luther, that wonderful reformer, after he was converted, he said this, I used to, I used to want a theology of glory. That is, I used to be impressed with the thought, reading the old, the mystics and some of the old writers prior to the Reformation. I used to be consumed with the thought of just getting close to God's glory, a theology of all about glory, said, now I prefer a theology of the cross. What's he mean? No man who knows himself and knows God can ever desire to draw near to that God apart from a mediatorial head. I have a kinsman, a relative in heaven who stands between me and the unapproachably holy God and that's how I'm accepted. I'm always concerned about people in a prayer meeting who talk all about the love of the Father and how amazed, well, God, why do you love us? And never mention the work of the cross. He is also the vital head, isn't he? he there is a living, spiritual, mysterious union between every true believer and Christ. We are in him. That is our new address And it will never change. He is finally the beginning or the origin of the church through his resurrection. He was raised from the dead. That means death has been conquered. And every believer will be raised from the dead. He is the first fruits. So if we go out in the field and we, you know, I don't know if you're farmers. Let's talk about gardeners because probably a lot of us garden. Not so many of us may be farmed. So we go out in the garden and down south we grow lots of tomatoes. You can grow more tomatoes than you can eat. And so there's tomatoes everywhere. We go out and if I plant tomatoes, I go out in the early season and I look and I see how they're turning out. Are they shriveled? Are they eaten by worms? Do they have that little rot that gets on the end of them and destroys my whole crop? I mean... 
But if they look good, and I pick one off, the first ripe one, and I go and make myself a tomato sandwich, and it's good, then I have, I'm full of hope. It's a good season coming up. If it's terrible, the first fruit is an indicator of what's coming. The resurrection of Jesus Christ to, be a, to ascend to the Father's right hand and to be ruling over all the worlds alone is a little foreshadowing of all that lies ahead for us. What kind of a crop will it be at the end? Well, we don't know, but we can look at the first fruit. So he is preeminent. All the fullness of God dwells in him. Now, that's the heart of Paul's life. Not just agreeing to those things, but laboring over them. I've just given you seven things. Labor over them. Why not devote the next, next seven weeks to take one of those statements and go from Genesis to Revelation with your Bible study helps, with your computer Bible study programs, and look up each one of those themes in Scripture and spend one week meditating on how is it that he is the heir of all creation? And, and in how many ways is he that? How is it explained to us? And you just dive in. Don't take a shower with the Bible. You know, showers are nice when you're in a hurry. Shut the door, lock the kids out, and soak in the Scriptures. Take a long soak in these descriptions until, like Paul, we find ourselves being altered. How can I ever think that a Christian is a person that prays a prayer, gets baptized, and never shows up again at church after I've met Christ? How can I ever think that the gospel is this? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's all? Well, yeah, that, that's all we need. We're getting into heaven. How could we ever think that was the gospel of Jesus Christ once I've spent time here? How can I ever think that pouring out my life, like Paul says, as a drink offering, which no one ever notices the drink offering. We do understand that when Paul says, I'm happy to be a drink offering. Are you happy to be a drink offering? So the offering, you know, the sacrifices are set on the altar and everyone sees the sacrifices. They're burning there. The smoke is ascending. Everyone knows about the sacrifices, but the drink offering was poured over top and it just ran down and off the sacrifice and onto the ground. God knows the drink offering, but nobody walks up and notices the drink offering. It just seems to disappear. And Paul says, I'm happy not to be the whole burnt offering that everyone notices how godly Paul is. I'm happy to be in prison. I'm happy to serve God in whatever way, even if it's the kind of way that nobody ever notices. How? Because of these seven descriptions of God seen in Jesus Christ. Christ is not just most impressive to Paul. Christ is all impressive. By the way, this is the cure for every problem in the Christian life and in the church. In chapters 2 and 3, he applies it, but we don't have time to apply it, but I'll just point you there. He talks about the problem of worldly philosophies, Schemes on how to live your life well. We, can, we have them in the church. Moral schemes. Raise your children this way. They'll be fixed. Do your church this way. Live your life this way. Have a marriage this way. And they're nice things. But if you think that those philosophies, those schemes of how to live well, if you think they will fix you, you're wrong. And Paul gives a cure here. He says, why be attracted to these early, earthly schemes of how to live these philosophies in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, he says, Don't you understand all the fullness of God is in him? And you are full with that fullness. Now, after those seven pictures of Jesus, Paul then in chapter 2 says, All of that is for you. 
So fill up on that. And then the worldly plans for how to live a great life, they just seem so cheap. What about legalism? How do you protect yourself against legalism? How do you protect your church against legalism in a way that doesn't drive you to self-indulgence? Well, it's not by ranting against the law. It's by filling up on Christ. Paul says, you want to go back to circumcision? You want to go back to the law? But Christ is the answer to that. He's the fulfillment of all that that was pointing to. What about asceticism? If I don't eat these things, if I, go to special, if I have special church days, if I have special things I do to beat down my sin nature, Paul says, do you think that really changes you? No. The fullness of Christ is the answer of that as well. Fill up on Christ. And that deals with the sin nature. What about worldly temptations? Chapter 3. Don't set your heart on the things that are here on earth. Set them on things above where he is. How do we resist the lure of the internet advertisement and the newest shiny magazine that comes in? Well, you can become very legalistic and, or you can fill up on Christ. The cure, Paul says, for all of this is Christ. Well, that sounds nice, Paul, but it doesn't work for me. I still, I need something else. Do you? Go back to chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, and stay there. What's the difference between the Apostle Paul as a man, as a Christian, and his life as a Christian and your life as a Christian? Well, there are a lot of differences, aren't there? Where does it come from, this difference? Paul wasn't born glowing with holiness and devotion and some kind of superhuman willpower. The difference between me and Paul is ultimately rooted in the different Jesuses we're gripped by. John Snyder has a much fuzzier view of Jesus than the Apostle Paul. And so when temptation comes and it's in HD, you know, it's Blu-ray, it's sharp and clear and crisp and bright, and the, and the lie comes and it's so believable, and Christ is vague, a bit fuzzy and distant, then temptation is chosen. But when Christ is clear, everything else seems to become so insignificant. So the way to have the Christianity that Paul had is to start where Paul did. Paul was a man that was religious a long time before he ever knew God. But once he knew God through Jesus Christ, that Damascus Road was the beginning. But it wasn't the end, was it? What about Philippians 3? Is that the difference between Paul and us? I press on to know him. I count everything lost. To know him. You already know him, Paul. No, I'm not talking about conversion. I want to know him and know him and know him. And as I gaze upon him, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm being transformed from one level of Christ-likeness to the next, to the next. Perhaps the difference between Paul's Christianity and ours is Philippians chapter 3. So what do we do? By the grace of God, we determine... I will not stop here in my knowledge of Christ, but I will give myself to knowing God through His Son, and I will give a concentrated, thoughtful, intentional effort to study this God-man until I find my life 
transformed in many of the ways that we've looked at Paul's life. And I think that we'll find God will be just as gracious to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that since you have given us a task no less important than the task of the first century church, no less important than the task for the Colossian believers, that every true church is to be thinking this way of a Christian, of the gospel, of this life of service. God, where, where are we going to get that except in that transforming knowledge of you? So we come to you and we plead with you. Spirit of the living God, open our eyes to behold the glories of our prince and captivate us, God. Dominate us by the awareness of who he is until all things are brought into the orbit of Christ and we are happily, happily prisoners of this king. Lord, we ask this for the glory of Jesus Christ in our town, in our families, in our souls, everlastingly. Amen.